Stage Door Johnny, the podcast about theatre and life and life in the theatre. This week, the podcast comes from New Hampshire, USA, as opposed to where I normally live, which is Old Hampshire, England. We're on our summer holidays, still. Come to visit the stage manager's family by a lake in New Hampshire. It's very sweet, where she spent her childhood summers. And it seems appropriate. It's basically become a travelogue, hasn't it now? With added conversations. We're in Greece last week. If you don't like the uh, chat, you can just admire the scenery. Seems appropriate that we're by a lake. By the way, if you hear the sounds of plashing water and children jumping off docks, I hope you'll be indulgent. Yeah, seems appropriate because this week we take a big splashy dive (laughs) torturous metaphor alert, into the beautiful, but perhaps behind the scenes, slightly turbid and dangerous waters of big-time musical theatre. I'm very excited, my first musical theatre episode, with the speedo-clad kings of the lake that is musical (laughs) theatre. The legendary composing duo of Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman. Now, Mark and Scott are extraordinary figures, have had extraordinary lives as well as extraordinary careers. They won a Tony and a Grammy for Hairspray. They write the the music and the lyrics for Catch Me If You Can from the Steven Spielberg movie, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, directed by Sam Mendes. And when we spoke in June of this year, 2023, they'd just been nominated for 13 Tony Awards for their smash hit adaptation of Billy Wilder's classic movie, Some Like It Hot. Yeah, Mark and Scott, really, they have had lives. I mean, Mark, Mark is one Oscar away from being an EGOT. Do you know what that is? Of course you do. EGOT is the sort of gold standard of awards celebration. You, it means that you stand for uh, winning an Emmy, a uh, Grammy, Oscar, and a Tony, and he's been nominated for an Oscar seven times. I mean, <laughs> no wonder he's a little shy of rejection, as you'll hear, despite all their extraordinary success. He was a baby Mozart, the baby Mozart of New Jersey. He was Bette Midler's pianist and musical director when he was still a child, basically. Um, they've just had this extraordinary life, and they've been trailblazers, too. They, When they won for... Uh, for Hairspray in 2003, they shared a very famous kiss. They were a romantic couple then, as well as a professional couple, no longer. They shared a kiss on stage at the Tony Awards, which caused this huge furore, if you can believe it. And they continued their their sort of trailblazing because this year, their, their Tonys that they won included one for... J. Harrison Gee for Best Lead Actor in a Musical for his fantastic performance as Jerry slash Daphne, who is the first openly non-binary person to win that award. So, you know, as you'll hear, their lives and their careers have just been remarkable. We spoke um, in their studio where the magic happens in Scott's apartment in Hell's Kitchen, Manhattan. And we begin by talking about our great mutual friend, the unbelievably missed late great Natasha Richardson. Anybody who knew Natasha 
and was sort of touched by her, the power of her personality, her amazing style and class and generosity and general life force. Can never forget her. Gentlemen of the Stage Door Johnny Company, this is your Act One Beginner's Call. Mr. Shaman and Mr. Whitman and Mr. Cake to the stage, please. This is your Beginner's. Listen, I'm so honored that you're taking the time to do this. Are you a Tony me. voter? <laughs> I'm not a Tony voter, but why I'm leaving. Aren't I? <laughs> Who is? Sure, sure. Why aren't we? I don't know. You were a nominator. Yeah, I was a nominator one year, and I don't think they liked me because they never asked me back. He was a nominator the year Natasha Richardson was nominated oh. for. Not nominated. Not nominated not- for Streetcar Named Desire. Oh. The hell so, he got on the so phone. So I got a call. Mark, it's Natasha. It's Natasha. Oh, how? How could I have? I actually, I actually don't remember any of it outside of how awkward it was. Because I said I voted for you, but the thing is, you don't talk with your fellow nominators. You all meet in this room, and then you can just write down your votes sure. on a piece of paper. And I said, "Oh, don't we talk about it? Oh, and like argue and, you and like persuade? you know and persuade." And they said, "No, we'd be here forever and ever." And do you really think anyone is going to change your mind right now about things? Yes, and I was you like. Are. Well, I said, I, I thought maybe. They were like, no, no, no. It's we have just learned over the years. <laughs> Write down who you want to nominate. Well, Tosh wasn't having that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I tell you who could have changed your mind if she'd been introduced to those Tony voters. Yeah, for I called her after and I said, would you, would you like to come over and we'll have a drink and stuff? And she said, yes, that would be fun. So I called up Matthew and Kristen Johnson and I think Nathan Lane. Oh, they were all here, and she came over, and the first thing, she, I said, can I make you a martini? And she said, do you have any lychees? <laughs> it's so perfect of her. I had to go out and find lychees. <laughs> Sourcing some emergency lychees. She was a strong-willed lady. She would have been 60. It was her birthday the other day. Oh, can you imagine gosh. that party? Can you imagine uh, that party? It'd still be going on. I mean, this is one of the very, very many things the world well, lost. Well, the, the show on Broadway now, also called Kimberly Akimbo, reminds Scott of, of all of our favorite Natasha stories. Oh, because um, we, had a, we had a mutual friend, Kristen Johnson, yes, and she called Kristen. up Kristen like in, a, in the, like the middle of the night. Cree! Cree! <laughs> And Kristen thought something had happened to one of the boys or something. And she said, uh, what, what's what she, you? Cree, those stairs outside Nobu. <laughs> I fell. Paparazzi everywhere. Legs akimbo. <laughs> and it's true. She came out of those stairs in London and Nobu with sunglasses right. on with Liam. Fell right in the street. Everything, all, everywhere, was all over the paper, everywhere. She was Kimberly Akimbo. Yes, yeah, so every time I pass oh. that as marquee, I think of that story I now. Know. We all do miss her, though. Oh, she was great fun. God, we do. She was extraordinary. So, look, how are you? We're good. Feeling? You must be, <laughs> aren't you feeling the greatest 13 Tony nominations for Some Like It Hot, the most... I think of any show, right? This this this, yeah, this Tony this year, yeah, yeah. season. Yeah. And are you feeling Well, if you if you knew me better, you'd know that <laughs> it, that just makes me think, oh, 13 chances to lose. Oh, 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 <laughs> You're my. talking to Eeyore and Tigger. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sure. Well, this is of course one of the many questions I wanted to ask you is how this creative partnership works so well. Partly I'm already, I'm already getting a sense we of had, you caught us in levels. this sweet spot, though, because 
we're in the month where it's just a, like a honeymoon where you just have 13 yeah. nominations. Sure. It's like so. getting a part, great part, but not actually having to do it. Yeah. It's always yeah. the best time. A commission, right. I'm sure, is the same thing. Nominations without any fear of disappointment yet. But look, I came to see the show. Scott very sweetly came and did a little in-person appearance, as though my 14-year-old daughter, whose birthday gift it was, was a Tony voter. You were very sweet to turn up and say hi. I said to Scott, you're already looking dubiously at me, but it was one of the great That's me smiling. Okay. (laughs) That was one of the great nights in the theater. It was, I said to Scott, it's such an extraordinarily difficult, heavyweight piece of intellectual property to get in the ring with but it's like you took the glass of champagne that was the billy wilder movie and added a dash of absinthe a couple of poppers and a night out in tijuana with the love child of dashiell hammett and shahshah gabor it was just the greatest it was just so effortlessly classy in everything it did and everything every way in which you reinvented that movie, the sort of the encoded drag idea of it, of of identity in the movie, came roaring out to the foreground in this magnificent way. Are you kind to say? Oh, God, it was fantastic. I mean, do you you feel... But did you like it? (laughs) I like the love child of uh, Jaja Gabor. (laughs) You're so far away from your mic. Am I too close? I don't think you're too close. I think we want to hear those... That beautiful bourbon over gravel <laughs> yes. uh, uh, baritone. By the way, I should also say, t- to begin with, I know nothing about musical theatre, forgive me. This is, I sort of feel like a desperate interloper in here, in your studio, by the way, where we're recording, where all sorts of imperishable magic must have happened. Sam Mendes, our mutual friend, once directed Company, and I <laughs> went to see it and said to him afterwards, that Stephen Sondheim is really talented, isn't he? He's good, that guy. So I know nothing. I'm so sorry. I know nothing about it. But I know enough about your world a little bit to know that it's pretty success-driven, right? It's a pretty finite thing. You hit or you miss. Yeah. Would you Would you say that? Yes, because it's, so it's, 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 it's so expensive. Because it's so bloody expensive, expensive right? Yeah, yeah. And because being a commercial theater as opposed to the theatrical tradition that I grew up in, which is partly public-funded, lots of the places, less so now, you know, the commercial imperative is mad, particularly for something, as you said, that's so expensive. So the question is, does it really matter to you if you win or not? Yes, although I'd be hard-pressed to ask any the man on the street what won last year. But <laughs> right. the thing is that, that it does, yes, it does matter because then it can be branded as that. Yeah. So it, but it is such an, it, first of all, it takes even longer than a play. It takes years of your life. It's almost seven years, was this one? Six. Six. Feels like seven. But they've all been but, like that, Charlie. The Chocolate Factory with Sam, that was yeah. six. I mean, it was. those are long years. Right. So it's a lot. It's a huge investment in time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what it means for the show, yes. Winning is good. I've won enough over my years in show business that I've lost many, and I know what it feels like, and so I'm, I know what that's like. But yeah, for the show's run and success, it, it means an awful lot. Right. And because of the, the, the nature of this one particularly, I don't know, does it mean more to you than others or not so much? You're speaking to me as if I was a man who had any feelings left. <laughs>
Like Albert Brooks, you left your feelings on the Beverly Hills. Yes. <laughs> of the Universal lot in no. 1972. No, it's, it's sadly true. That. No, I mostly dread everything now. I dread rehearsal. I dread <sighs> what the stage manager's report's going to say tonight. I I dread the Tony Awards. and <laughs> huh. But for the show, I really... Would. Do you feel like your skin has got thinner? Thinner. Thinner every oh. year. Yes. I Gosh. can't take it anymore. <laughs> and is that simply because... It's a lot of blunt force trauma. Putting yes. A, putting a big musical together. He has oh. a lot of PTSD. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've been working since I was 16, which is 1976. Yeah. Although I've been lucky enough to work on a lot of iconic movies where the reviews didn't really touch me. Only one. I remember uh, the movie Patch Adams, Janet Maslin in the New York Times. I think she's dead now. <laughs> She wrote Mark Shaman's noxious music. It's funny that you only remember the bad ones. <laughs> yeah. oh, well, because they really isn't that what they, they bear, in a movie they don't much mention the music. That was the name of Henry Mancini's autobiography. Did, Did they mention the music? That should be the title of your memoir. Yeah. <laughs> and then Hairspray was this glorious fairy tale. Yes, where everything was beautiful and perfect and the yes. reviews were you know just what you dream of and it's still running it's yeah. like in la now well, at the dull somewhere <laughs> yeah uh, i mean we, we i want to get on to this and by the way just in case you were thinking i wasn't setting you up enough <laughs> there will be a long introduction with an encomium and a list <laughs> of your extraordinary <laughs> awards which by the way this is another thing about doing this podcast which i really didn't expect you know we've sort of orbited each other's lives for a while but you know, the business of looking at people's lives and careers, taking a step back and doing it, is such a privilege, you know, to be able to look at the work you guys have done, the things you've uh, achieved. You probably never get to do it until you're, you know, at somebody else's only you know, funerals do we step back and sort of have a chat about it. Or maybe not, Mark. Maybe you're getting a lot of, are you both guys getting a lot of career Sort of award. Well, I did. I, I, what was it? It wasn't for my sixth. Oh, it was for my sixtieth birthday. They cut together a reel, which you know I, I I I've yet to watch it without both breaking down in tears and in exhaustion <laughs> from reliving <laughs> all that. We are so prolific, and you've been doing it for such. Well, a we do time. feel like elder statesmen, right? Yeah, and longevity is its own reward. Where you realize, my God, I've been doing this a long time, and I'm still doing it in the, I don't want to say, you know, you upper yes. echelon. You're of, the preeminent oh. composing duo of uh, our time. Right. You are. He's going to ask you about that, about names. How did you, you know, Rogers and Hammerstein, Candor and Ebb, Lennon and McCartney, did you ever think about the order? How have you... No, because his name always comes twice on the billing. I see. <laughs> no, but you know what? We are more than that. Not that we're like those people, but we're Mark and Scott. We're, we're not Mark shaming it with yeah, you. Yeah, well, as yeah. you both end in man, I didn't know whether you should have done some sort of Daniels style, <laughs> like witch shame. No, everyone just knows this as Mark and Scott. Yeah, just okay. Mark it's and like Scott, it's yeah. like one word. Right. Now, I do have to warn you, I'll get very angry at you if you... you positive? When, when you are... <laughs> what? Are you positive? Oh, let me check. Yeah. 
Mark is taking a COVID test. No, it looks like as I'm. We speak. Oh. It looks like I'm as negative as as I'm coming across. <laughs> Your natural negativity. Oh, what, I know what he, he's going to. We write the lyrics together, so yes. everyone always confused. Somehow, for some, some reason, people don't think that we do that. Uh, like they think that I sit over there and yeah, write yeah, the yeah, lyrics yeah, yeah. and then throw them, or lob them across the room. Right. But we sit right here at this desk like this and wow, we write and we do the, the lyrics. Here. And the lyric writing is the thing I most enjoy. And take the most pride in. So when I'm constantly left off of it, it's like they literally take the words out of my mouth. Oh, wow. So, and I'm always shocked because it says it right there yeah. on, on the program or in the whatever or my Wikipedia page. Yeah. It'll be on my tombstone. Well, well, let's just do it right now. So the division of labor. Can you paint a picture for me? How does it work typically? And I'm so curious about creative partnerships. You sit at this desk. I, well, in, a little- uh, uh, in the last few years, I, I sit chair. in that chair yeah. Do you? Yes. across <laughs> from the desk. Why have you moved to the chair? <laughs> he doesn't write at the piano. so okay. he'll, he'll You know, there. when we really, like hairspray, I was sitting in a chair like this at the piano with right. a yellow legal pad writing with a pencil. Wow. I, I still write with a pencil. But then once I moved to a laptop, a black wing. I was over. I moved over there to have a, a place to place the laptop. And that's yeah. truly the difference. Now... <laughs> I keep saying this. I think I should go back to the piano because all the reviews that call my music unmemorable, maybe it's because I'm, 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 I'm away from the piano too much. <laughs> and maybe if we wrote with me at the piano more, the melodies would be but all, more memorable. But some like it out or catchy. I don't know what you're talking about. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Yeah. My son, my son who's 15 and should be listening to, I don't know what kind of drill. Taylor rap. Swift. Taylor Swift. He, he cannot stop playing the soundtrack to some like a hot on heavy, heavy rotation. He could sing you every, every single song. Never. God bless him. I, I'm serious. Oh, but if you Google Mark Shaman plus unmemorable. <laughs> The the amount oh, it would be geez. a tsunami of articles would come for us. Isn't that by the way an oxymoron? We're live from Eeyore's swampy bar. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that an actual oxymoron? You know, this is the this is the thing. The more people write unmemorable, the more hits you're getting for your actual celebrity and enormous reach. It's just bullshit. Isn't there always going to be people, particularly now in our Tower of Babel culture? Who can write shit like that? Look, the proof is in the pudding. You're packing out some like it hot on Broadway every night. It's got 13 Tony nominations. My 15-year-old <laughs> is voting with his earbuds. Oh, oh, I was hoping you were actually saying he was a voter. <laughs> no, 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 sadly. There's, there's no use to you, actual use to you here. Let's go back. No, no, no. no. Let, actually, let's not. Let's stay with the process. Okay. So you've gone away from the piano, Mark. So so you're sitting here, Scott. You might be sitting perhaps where you're I'm sitting right, where right I'm now. Sitting, right? This is fantastic. <laughs> you're sitting in the 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 wingback uh, easy chair. Yes. And you've got a laptop. I've been, you're I'm writing still, longhand. Yes, and I write on big uh, giant butcher's paper. Right. And what happens when you well, diverge? Well, first we don't. Tell me. I don't get him in here until he. I have to comes close. I, like he comes close to a title. He has to have, if not the title, something close, which is the beginning of our work. But until he has some of that, I can't even get him in this room. So I'm like a detective. So I, I will, I will work. I'll talk to the book writer. Well, if it's based on another property, you right. guide you. To, it's everything has to come from character, right? Because so, you're not writing pop songs in the ether. 
So if it's a period like some like at Hot, I watched, I read, you know, Al Capone biographies, wow. Texas Guinan biographies, books on bootlegging, Jimmy Cagney movies, all they say. I watched all, you know, I like that part. Whether yeah. it's called research or procrastination, I don't know. <laughs> but I, I start to write down words and then things start to you know, ruminated, then we get to, then I come in and then we sit and look. And then we sit together and it's phrase association where he says something, I'll say something. We, you know, we keep writing down what each of us says or what something he says makes me think of and vice versa. Uh. And then there's just a whole bunch of words and phrases of what this song is about in essence. And then I'll take that over to the piano. How much do you need before you go to the piano? Pretty, uh, a title. Uh, are you talking much. about drugs? <laughs> Oh, I don't know. Usually, yeah. Well, I mean, I would say in the in the last few decades, um, I'll have some kind of rhythmic something already. The rhyme scheme and the rhythm I'll usually already have by the time I go to the piano. But on the other hand, that's not true. Sometimes it is just phrases. And I always think, what was that movie that Harry Connick Jr. that Jodie Foster directed about the little math kid, Little Man Tate, Little Man Tate, where where when he looked at like numbers and math they just came off the page they were coming at him and and that's what it's like when i go over there you know the phrases i just start look at them and then suddenly the little one just starts singing and and you know so that suddenly there's a real melody then with all the phrases we've gathered i'll i'll write the dummy version of the song so in the famous Paul McCartney won his, you know, scrambled eggs. When he woke up with the melody of yesterday, yeah. he just wrote it down as scrambled eggs. I just bring that up, not to compare ourselves to Paul McCartney, Do just it. the dummy lyric. So between those phrases and some nonsensical dummy words and some other phrases that might come up when I'm singing the song, because when you're singing, suddenly your emotions, it's, it's more like they're more open. Yeah. You know, it's like you turn the faucet on and then so, and then I'll go back to that chair and now we have like an actual melody with the firm rhythm and where the emphasis of the syllables really has to be and where the rhyme schemes or maybe the little inner rhymes. And then we sit for the like part two of the lyric writing and really carve in stone. And we always sit first terrified that we have no idea what we're going to write. Right. I always compare it to because you know, everyone thinks the, the, the Shining is a movie about you know, uh, a little boy with entry ESP. Yeah. It's about writer's block. That right. movie. <laughs> That's that terrifying fear of sitting there yeah. with a white piece of paper and just typing over and over all work and no play. So there's fear. Has that, fear that ever that, happened to you? Oh, it happens every yeah, single time. Every time you start. A day or for the first day or two. And then suddenly you, suddenly you, you spring a leak and then. It's just so funny. I just happened to this morning, Sam, my assistant, my associate, my man, Friday. Friday, he finally found, he'd been looking for it, the demo of me singing the title song, Some Like It Hot, uh, for, that I sent to the singers, because our orchestrator wants to make use of it for something where they play what he gets and then what it sounds like finished. And we wrote like 6,000 verses to Some Like It Hot. But four days earlier, we were like, uh, what are we gonna? But they were good. I mean, wow. there's a there's a little here and there. There's a but also we, we're writing for characters, so yeah. that's also a big part of it. So you know, we often like when we worked with Terrence McNally or 
David Gregg or Matthew Lopez on this. Matthew Lopez on this. Why don't you write a monologue what you think the song should be about? And sometimes, well, you know, for the character, for the character where Uh. they would sing because they have the most unsung job, but the hardest because they have very limited real estate to get to the next song. And then we get we steal the moment from them because that's when they're. There's no more things left to say they sing. So I remember during like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory uh, reading, Carl Sagan was it? I read all those Carl Sagan books. Yes, because of the cosmos cosmos and all of that. So those things start to creep in. But it's the book writer will often give you the shape of what he thinks. And sometimes we'll have such an idea for a song that we'll go ahead and write it. And then the book writer has to figure out how to to put it in the plot. And seamlessly, which isn't uh, always easy to figure out. All right, how do we get that in there? How do we? How do we? You know, butter the door. Yeah, and sometimes, sometimes that's a problem. You realize even a song can be really good, and then you're just having such problems setting it up. Right. Or also, like Scott said, you have to set it up so precisely or economically. Yeah. So there's a song in the show now. That I'm certain could be set up even better, but we just ran out of time. Someone could hot. Yeah. Know. So it's okay what's in there now, but I just know it could be set up better. And I, we try to follow the Jerry Lewis school of thinking. Yeah, he's famous. He said, "This is the, the, the the secret of show business: tell them what they're going to see, show it to them, tell them what they saw." <laughs> <laughs> that's that's good. Which goes against the other famous law, which is show don't tell. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's always that sounds rubbish to me. <laughs> you, you said you said Mark. Yes. That the phrases start singing at you. Yes. Is 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 that really how it feels? The phrases themselves have music in them that you are sort of just picking. Yeah, well, I'm sort of, you know, making it sound all magical and all. <laughs> well, I mean, my hands are on the piano and I'm, and I'm singing and, and I, you know, but yeah, I, it's that inspiration of whatever makes yeah. me sing that melody or that rhythm or chords. It's also f- by chance just last night, I was channel hopping with my husband and the original Hairspray movie came on and he said, you know, I've never seen this. So we watched the whole thing. Oh so that was fascinating once after all these years to watch the whole thing and remember how and why we were inspired to write certain songs, including two moments almost in the same five-minute sequence where Tracy Turnblad says, now all Baltimore knows I'm big, blonde, and beautiful. But Scott and I both knew that's a great song title. It ended up being a song for another character, Motormouth Mabel. But And then just a few minutes later, she takes her mother out to get a fashion do-over and then that scene ends with her saying mama welcome to the 60s which immediately just sung hey mama welcome to the 60s i mean that's just it just sang right off of the screen but that was a case where we wrote we wrote those songs on spec we because they didn't they weren't sure if they wanted to hire us to do the whole score right so you had to write sort of audition songs four songs we said well let us take a crack at it we wrote these four songs there was no book writer yet either so we wrote four songs and they're all the sort of tent poles of the show still so they had to sometimes figure out a way how how does this work into the we got to get this in because it's so good let's go back to the beginning do you remember Scott, the first time you were in a theater. Yes. <laughs> Can you tell us? Yes, I was. My father, who was an umpire, um, took me to. I'm sorry. Uh, 
what does that mean? Baseball. He was a baseball umpire. Yeah, yeah. A professional baseball umpire. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So he would travel my, around. My brother, was a, my, my brother was a basketball player, so I had to do something different. Yeah, you really did. <laughs> so he took me to see a show called uh, um it was called anatomy of burlesque and yes. it starred a very old stripper named sally rand and i went and saw that with him she wait. must have been in her 60s wait, at the time. wait 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 <laughs> your first experience in the theater is your father the umpire taking you to a strip show yes but it was a, it was a in burlesque. a summer stock show so it was kind of like a like a like a it was like sugar babies like, probably like, you know like a very it wasn't like raunchy it was oh, like it was sort of a nostalgic look oh. back on well she was, six, was definitely a nostalgic look oh, back yes, if she, she was, it was 60. so dark on the stage i didn't even know she took her clothes off <laughs> how old and were that's you all, i was i was young i was pretty young what sort of effect did that have? Uh, well, I'm here. <laughs> you survived it. I'm still trying to recreate that moment. I can still remember, like, when we did um, Catch Me If You Can, I remember all the girls. We had, it's like, there was like tw- eight, you know, long legged showgirls, and they're oh. almost all half naked with uh, white fans. It looked just like that show that I'd seen. Oh. And one of them had the, the stripper, Sally Rand, who was the star of that show, used to dump perfume in on in her trunks and so the whole theater started smell is i had it all came back when i did oh, <laughs> how amazing so it was a powerful effect it had on you yes it was it an was, impressive uh, yes. first go at the theater yes and i can and if i smell jungle gardenia perfume i can i'm right back there wow <laughs> uh, mark what was your f- first time at the theater I know I went to see fiddler on the roof on broadway as a kid but i don't really remember it i just had the program Ironically, Bette Midler was in it at that time. Who you would, of course, become the accompanist. Yeah. And, then and I do director. remember always looking at that portfolio. What do you call it? Program. Souvenir book. Souvenir book. book. Oh. And being attracted to her smile. Just knowing there was something emanating from that girl in those three pictures that really caught my attention. But I don't remember the actual being in the theater. And then... I will hang on to this desk to tell you that I was just at the hospital visiting someone who's on their way off stage. She's 95 years old. She was the woman who, along with another woman in my community, saw that my high schools and junior high schools where I grew up in my township weren't putting on shows. I heard when I did shows and their musicals and my schools didn't have musicals. But luckily, these two ladies, Manya and Judy... They just formed, they had been in the theater and then had moved to suburbia, but they put together this summer theater workshop. So my real first memory was I went with my friend Cheryl, who was going to audition for The Sound of Music they were putting on that summer. And I went with her and I said, can I audition to play piano? And they were like, well, sure, here, play piano. And I went and played. And because there had not been music in my schools, which is bizarre, no one had really heard me play except for like my aunts and uncles when they would come over the house. And I was like this freaky Prodigy. Mozart of show business. You yeah. know, I, I had show business in my everything. And I played whatever I played and I turned around and they were all staring at me. And I, I still can see it. And uh, I was hooked right away. And that was it. And How then old were you? 12 or 13. Oh. And this woman, Judy Cole, who I was just visiting, she directed community theater all around, you know, where we grew up, all around in different towns. And she just took me 
And the first one with the adults was Funny Girl, a production of Funny Girl she was directing, and she brought me to a rehearsal. Oh, that's right. The piano player wasn't working half the musical director. And so she brought me, and she said, everyone, here's our new musical director. And I was literally like this. I was just a pimple on two legs. And they all were like, Judy, are you insane? And she said, Mark, go to the piano. And, you know, I, I played, and they were all like, okay, all right. And then I just was doing one community theater show after another and all school work went out the window but theater and and the actual you know piano conductor books you get when you do a show where it's the real version of the music in the show and not like what you buy in the sheet music at a music store but you can listen to cabaret cast album and look at this music and actually see the trombone line and the flute line and all that and that was my schooling how how did you have show business in your fingers as you put it how had that happened to you grew up in new jersey yes and uh what was the conduit how did you find it or it find you god or whatever you call <laughs> god there's no other explanation actually there is that's also a, a bittersweet story in the uh final years of my father's life he was carving these cute little cartoon figures he would like a little cowboy, cowboy at a piano, or, or it's just these cute three-dimensional things. And for years, I was so stupid. I thought he was buying some sort of kit that had, like, lines on it, and that even, like, paint by numbers. And if you carved down that line, and then the other line was in there. And then I realized, finally, like, oh, no, he's literally just taking a piece of wood and carving these things. So... That breaks my heart that he didn't do that his whole life, and he just became a suburban father and raised four kids and put us all through school. And so he had this artistic yeah. ability that he would do in his that spare he hid time. In the garage. Yeah, that he hid in the garage. Well, he, I mean, he only did in the garage in the last you know ten years of his right. life. So no show business in your families. No, both of your families. No, mine were all all sports. Right. And so this came out of entirely left field, though obviously there was some artistic impulse. Well, did you come from a theatrical family? No, Act- my father was a traveling sales a salesman, so he was a sort of an actor of sorts, exhibitionist. Yeah. Exactly. So he was essentially just you know on a smile and a shoe shine the whole his whole life. So he was just one theater, formal theater away from always being a performer. So at twelve and thirteen, you've mastered this. Thing by listening to sh- records, to listen, yeah, to records, and getting everything you could. You know, we grew up in the in the heyday of television variety shows, right, right? So show business was on TV all the time. Right. You know, Johnny Carson, The Tonight Show, Frank Sinatra. You know, the the, the height of show business was right. was being performed. Also, the cheesiness of show business that was in the sixties and seventies, especially when you know the older people in show business were trying to remain youngish and it was just sounding corny and and that was when scott and i met he was directing a comedy group and i happened to meet literally them on the street practically and they said we need a new piano player a funny piano brother can you play together wherever we go cheesy and i was like oh you mean like at a bar mitzvah i knew the difference between how it is in gypsy and how it is i knew what they meant when they said cheesy and they were like you're hired that's our hitler yeah so okay (laughs) You met at, uh, what was it, 76? 1976. Yes. Yeah. You both found your way from outside. I was outside, already living in New York. From outside Manhattan, but yeah, you, yeah. You, you weren't brought up in yeah. the city, right? No, I lived Scott? in it. 
right of uh, a NIAC, which was like right. a sign there that yeah. said 45 minutes at Broadway. I didn't know it was going to be 45 years. 45 years. <laughs> Not <laughs> true, of course. No, it you was true. Well, it was true. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. It turns out it was true. But it had but, a summer theater there. Right. There was a summer theater there. And, uh, and Helen Hayes, I used to mow Helen Hayes' lawn. There's no, no euphemism. But, I, but I, I used to mow her lawn. And there was a summer theater there. And I would work there all right. the time. And you didn't do anything like what I did with community theater. No. It was I all worked that, in the that... summer stock theater, right. and I did a show every week. And I, my father at that point says, I, you know, I'm not t- I'm driving you, so I had to take a bike there. And one time I came home, and he said, what are you doing? I said, I, I have to wash Lana Turner's panties. Because <laughs> <laughs> she was in 40 carats or and something. summer stock would get these big... Yes, Stars and they do it for time. one week. Right. Yeah. So I was, and then he says, I guess show business is a good thing. <laughs> One can only imagine what Lana Turner's. Did he say, oh, let me do that. I'll, I'll take those. <laughs> but clearly, I mean, this came from sort of nowhere for both of you. Do you ever wonder about what this sort of coup de food with this art form was about? You, you had none of it, it seemed, no example to live up to in your families you're both these extraordinary savants gifted but unable to you found finding a, an outlet for it where you were living well it was trying finding a tribe i found yeah. a tribe and and so the people that i was close to in school and things they were they were we were in the same Back, like I, right. I would go into the city every. I would save my lunch money and go. I went to the Academy of Dramatic Arts on Saturday, and right. I would go to matinees. And this is when you know you had to jump over bodies to get to right. Times Square. Sure, seventies. <laughs> yeah, sure. So you, so you inevitably find yourself in New York because that's where the life that you want right, to lead right. is. Someone comes into a bar that you were playing piano at, Mark, and no. says, can you play? I mean, it's poor Scott. He's heard me tell this story so no, many times. Right. Sorry. But, uh, no, no, no. I went to see an off-Broadway musical that was at a theater called the Actors Playhouse down in the village. Right. Ironically called Boy Meets Boy. It was that height of nostalgia. And it was a, it was a kind of like the boyfriend, only it was with gay. So it was 1970. It was that, you know, the real beginning of gay liberation and stuff. Yeah. So we went to see this musical. I still was living in New Jersey, but I had left high school. I got a diploma with a test you can take. And the day I turned 16, I stopped going to school. I had a diploma. So it was that summer. And we went to see Boy Meets Boy. And then ironically, this boy met that boy because we ran into some other friends from New Jersey who happened to be walking down the street and we looked up and there was this little restaurant bar that we just went into to catch up with these friends and it was a piano bar it's actually quite famous and iconic it's called yeah, uh marie's, marie's crisis, crisis. It's, oh, cool. it's like the world's oldest yeah. piano bar but uh, we didn't know that and but there was a piano and i was 16 and you know oh you know so then i sat down at the piano and we were the only ones in there except very much like an old hollywood movie the bartender was sweeping up oh this is crazy and i was playing and so this part really is like a movie and he stopped sweeping and i was like hey kid you're good wait right here and he came up and, and he went me. yeah and next door scott was rehearsing with his friends at a club called the duplex a comedy review where their piano player wasn't working out no i called him mittens <laughs> <laughs> and so they suddenly came running that through the front door on the steps and they said can you play together where we go cheesy and i could and and so that was 
That was that. Joined the review. Yes. And you carried on working from that point onwards. I lived in, I had an apartment on 79th Street, and I lived across the hall from one of Bette Midler's Harlettes. That's her backup singers. You know, she had had three girls who were always in the shows with her. This was in the beginning of her career. She had just hit it big. And so he was obsessed with Bette Midler. And I said, Oh, this is my friend, Ula Hedwig. He, he, so, I mean, I couldn't believe, oh, my God, one of Bette Midler's backup singers. I can't believe I'm meeting her. Yeah. And then the, all the the Harlettes, they sang one song on their own in Bette's last tour. And that made them think, hey, let's just do our own act as the Harlettes. So there they were across the hall looking for a musical director, piano player. And there I was. And I have a million stories like this of being in the right place at the right time, which is why it's so hard when people ask me for advice. I'm like, um, meet Scott. Yeah. And then Scott has to, <laughs> is living across the hall by chance yeah. for one of Bette Midler. Like, you know what it. you'll appreciate, though, is that he was the like preeminent when people auditioned for musicals. He was always the piano player. Right. But often when he would play the piano, they didn't want to talk to the actor. They I know. It's horrible. More than once, <laughs> you, you, we, we would finish the song. Bum, 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 bum. Mark, that was unbelievable. <laughs> was like, that was horrible. I used to be able to transpose. I, I was really good as an audition piano player at that time and that's what i was i I, you know i just started getting work right away even the guy at the piano bar i was 16 and he didn't know that and he hired me right away to not only uh, not only was i working for scott and his friends on the weekend but all week, I was suddenly the piano player at Marie's Crisis and moving to New York. My parents were like... For, then working my, for Bette Midler. Yeah, and they were like, well, he's, <laughs> he's got a job, but for some reason, he won't tell us where it is. And they were okay with that? They didn't mind you getting the diploma and leaving? And- no, well, they had no choice about the I diploma. I went and took the test, and it came in the mail, and I was like, look. Yeah, right. And then I, I took a summer course at Carnegie Mellon University uh, College in Pittsburgh, and I went with my friend Cheryl, the same friend I went to that audition with that one time. And because uh, I guess I kind of also thought I was going to be in the theater in, in all capacities. I don't know. Because this was just like an acting summer thing. But there was mime. And there was there was this one teacher, Rina Yerushalami, Israeli, really intense, kind of mean and really intense. And all the kids didn't like her. And I thought she was fabulous because I loved her her outrageousness and she called me like a few months after that and was like mark i'm doing an evening of beckett at la mama and i want there to be sound effects but i want them to be musical so that was the first time my parents i was like i'm going to new york working on a show and i probably got paid ten dollars five dollars but they that was the first time they went well He's working. And then this other thing happened, and suddenly I was I was a wad of cash at the end of every week. Right. Tell me about New York at that time, because I know you were doing extraordinary things, Mark. Right, right. Scott, you were working uh, sort of Max's Kansas City what, doing all these reviews. I was doing – yeah, I, I had figured out a way to make money because I was a bartender and a waiter right. and all that. And so I um, – started doing uh, shows in clubs. I, I had conned my way into this. By uh, I would go in and Steve Rubell or, or whoever would say, here's $10,000. We want to show at one o'clock in the morning. And because it, DJs weren't the stars, it was, and this was a way to get people into the right into the club. So I would do these. They used to call me Mister Demille because they were extravaganzas. They would have sometimes <laughs> two hundred, three hundred people. Really? 
they'd only and I wouldn't I'd keep all the money. I'd pay everyone in drink tickets. <laughs> <laughs> so I would do these huge giant shows. Uh, yeah. We would both do them too. Well, but we all had a, a little club together uh, in the East Village. Club fifty seven. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about Club fifty seven. It was kind of fantastic because at the time we both felt it was it was very much sorry the British invasion on Broadway, oh. and we were a little too rock and roll for theater and too theatery for rock and roll. So we found kind of like-minded people, and they had this basement of this Polish Catholic church on on, on St. Mark's Place. And there were other, you know, Jean-Michel Basquiat and Keith Haring, they were all there too. So I, I remember saying, like, get, get, tell Keith to get these fucking paintings out of here. I, you know, like, that. <laughs> I have a show. We have a show tonight. If only we had taken one <laughs> home. <laughs> <laughs> but so, so we started to do, uh, I did the Trojan Women there, which was- did you? Yeah, but in a crazy way. And for some reason, like the next weekend, uh, the next week it was on, I look at the audience and there's Joe Papp and Mike Nichols and, and oh. Tommy Toon. And all. so they became very popular. Yeah. So we've said we better write a musical. And Mark was in the Trojan Women. He played uh, Astonax. Astonax. Son of, son of Andromaca. <laughs> oh, fantastic. I had a suckle at my friend Laura's <laughs> succulent. <laughs> Yes. It, yeah, yes. it was quite something. So, she, so uh, <laughs> the best part about it was we would do these shows just to do them. No thought about, well, this is going to be our key to success. It or, was the seventies dream. We yeah, were yeah. just having fun, and we really had fun. I can still remember we did the Sound of Music once. Of course, we didn't get the rights to do Sound of Music. We just did it, but it was with these, you know, like-minded. Freaks cavorting, we would call ourselves. <laughs> and uh, me and my friend Marge got on the phone after we both got home. And we talked about it and laughed even longer than the show took place. The show was probably 90 minutes. But me and Marge laughed for maybe four hours as we recounted every moment that it happened. And we would just do these shows just for that. Just for the joy of being young yeah. and... Do you miss it was it? fearless. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah of course. Well, I mean, I'm so curious Just, about you two because where the performers in you... I mean, Mark, I've seen you perform and you're an extraordinary performer. And, Scott, you're, you're directing. Is it very difficult keeping out of those areas when you're dealing with other performers? Are you... Uh, you, mean, you mean other directors? Or other directors. Well, we, we, can, we can be kind of tend to be bossy boots Do about you? things. Excellent. But, you know, I, I like it. Like, I like, I like Sam, like, like working with Sam. Sam yeah. was good to, you know... He's good to banter with. So it right. was, you know, if someone, if unless someone's doing some terrible thing, you right. know, and, 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 but yeah, we kind of, you know. And Jack O'Brien, who directed Hairspray, his nickname for Scott was Paul. Not as in Paul, as in, hey, mom, Paul, but as in Scott's Paul would come suddenly tap on his shoulder with like, you know. Don't you think it would be better? (laughs) (laughs) But I suppose I'm really wondering about the Club 57 aspect, the Trojan women of it, the uh, the suckling at your friend's (laughs) breastplate. You know, where does that live in you guys? Now, Zadie Smith told me that, you know, she's really hoping at some point to put on a lot of weight and just wear moo-moos and do a residency at the Carlisle telling stories and singing the occasional yeah. standard. Is there a part of you that would love to go back to that iteration of your No, lives? you know what the thing, too, about it, though, then was that New York was like a, a, a small country at war. It was like because people were dying around us in great 
amounts. Right. And the first people to go were the artists and, and fr our friends. Right. And so that's the other memory I have of those shows. Right. When, and, and a funny, and funny how life is like about two, two years ago, MoMA decided they were going to do a whole retrospect about only about Club 57 and which is kind of an amazing in itself that this one little this place it was really tiny, and there were mighty but was small but mighty. Now was on three floors of the Met of the of the MoMA, and so, there were obviously a lot of other people who also did th performances yeah. at this Club Fifty Seven. It wasn't just Scott and I. We were the theater. You know, we were the theater theater nerds. But they know. had they had they had archived your. Performances. People had shot. Yeah, if, yeah. We had a crazy guy uh, named uh, Nelson who would follow everyone all the time with a camera. And so when he drank, the camera would go up to the ceiling <laughs> and come back down again. It was very Robert Altman, wow. but he would follow everyone everywhere, and yeah. he would tape record all the shows. And I had them, and so that MoMA oh, went okay. and cleaned them, and, and now they're all. You can watch them at any time you want. Oh my goodness, how <laughs> extraordinary! So you were there and. The, there was a show that we did, uh, we, night did we, we, you... we had like a talk back where one of our friends Laura who we wrote a musical with her she performed one of the numbers in that where she played identical twins right? twins right. and killed herself and then um, in the show and then we were interviewed was it Michael Musto? Right, Michael Musto right. yeah so we were just interviewed about it I mean, the sad, the, as again, the sad thing was that, uh, you know, that's, there were so many people who were, you know, were, were gone. Mark said on opening night of, of Hairspray, he, he wished that the, uh. I, I'm, I, that's when you asked about memories of Hairspray, that one always comes flooding back, which was opening night, which was obviously the greatest night of our lives. Yeah. But then, uh, they put a mic in my hand <laughs> on the curtain call. <laughs> And I just said, I wish that the balcony went straight up to heaven mm. because there were so many people who we created these other shows like Hairspray, yeah. but on the on 50 cents. Yeah. And they were all there and part of this uh, community and they were all gone. They were all dead. Oh and we had gone to so many funerals and memorials. And I just hoped that they were somehow still watching. Was that part of Hairspray's DNA? Did you think? Yes, as some people often said, uh, hairspray looked like Club Fifty Seven with money, and it did in a way because it had right. that sensibility. We thought we had invented irony. Right, it was that generation. <laughs> but the AIDS crisis too. Did you feel like it must be very difficult? Something else I wanted to ask you creatively. So much of your inspiration has come from these great filmmakers. You know, John Waters for Hairspray, Billy Wilder yeah. now for Some Like It Hot. You must have to be in a sort of communion with them but you must also be in a communion with the times you're living in yes. you know i know you wrote a marvel song uh, a song for the marvel show and you were talking about it being the first part of lockdown and everyone was beating pots and pans for it was the yeah, save yeah, new york yeah, save, the save the city save the city, save the city. Thank you. yeah we wrote that on, you know on zoom we weren't even we weren't in the room together right so but yeah, that was every night when people were banging yes but that certainly figures into things yes. and and um but um we we fled to california after that because right. um uh it was it was just too haunted in new york in new york yeah but I'm interested in that idea that where it must be incredibly difficult for you to talk about or really define where you know you'll get you're picking up the inspiration for these you, this process that you describe where you 
throw lyrics around between you, but it must be so much of what is ambiently, apart from all your research, Scott, what, what is ambiently affecting you at any one time. And I, all your extraordinary history coming up in New York must still be very much part of the DNA of your music. Do you think? Yeah, I, I would believe so. I mean, I think of certain people when I was sometimes writing in a sort of lyrical, you know, like a, there's songs in, from Smash that I, I think of certain people when we were writing them that, mm. are, that are not here, yeah. And I'm just the idiot savant who <laughs> comes, no comes, comes to walk in, you know, I walk in and to say, what are we, what are we going to do today and what does it have to be and... You have the phrases sing at you. That sounds yeah. that sounds magical <laughs> enough. Um, we we should talk about Marilyn. You you must be you must be the sick of her. America's <laughs> America's leading Marilynologists, Monrovians. Oh and believe because, it or not, we still have to. We oh my god! Now we're doing Smash on Broadway. Well, we should talk about yes. it. Yeah. yeah. So just to just to explain the backstory for anybody who doesn't know, you wrote this TV show called Smash, in which there was it was about people putting on a musical, and you wrote the fictional musical within a show yes. called Bombshell right. about. Right. I mean, I mean, Steven Spielberg literally called and said we, he wanted to do a TV show about the making of a musical, and then we would write a musical every year. On the series, Jesus. and then the show they would do the show on Broadway. And, oh, that was see, that's how that they was pitched it. That was oh, the pitch. Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> that sounds like getting in line twice. Right. That and we great. said to Spielberg, "How did you get this number?" <laughs> <laughs> so we we immediately said yes. <laughs> there was one day, the only day that everyone agreed on anything from that point on was when we were talking about what could the musical be, and we knew it had to in some way be like the mirror lives of the each, characters mirror, on a mirror show the characters of, of actresses right. trying to get into show business and Scott's there were a few ideas and then Scott said well what about the, a, a musical about Marilyn Monroe her life has so many chapters that are so interesting and yet they are all about like what show business is it's like a great and tragedy. everyone just was like yes it was it made me the only time I've ever seen that in show business, God knows it was the only time on Smash right. where everyone the, just went. The next yep. two years were like Vietnam. Oh, <laughs> oh no. Because it, it went from Showtime, right, to, to, to Network. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so it went through all these different iterations, but then you wrote the Some Like It Hot musical, which of course is the ghost of Marilyn Monroe. Is, right. And you had written the Some Like It Hot sequence within yes. the yes, yeah. musical. Within it's very the- Marvel, all of it. <laughs> and that song is <laughs> in our show. <laughs> Just by chance, because when it suddenly we had to write a song about people kind of saying, let's be naughty tonight, let's be bad. And we were like, we wrote wrote this song. And we wrote it for this multiverse version of Some Like It Hot on Smash. There was a whole sequence that we were seeing a scene and a song of Marilyn filming Some Like It Hot and and disregarding authority and showing up late. And so the song, as all songs on Smash were what Marilyn would be singing in her life, but also what was going on with the characters on the show. And so the the character of Ivy was also, who was playing Marilyn, was having these moments. So the song spoke to both things, but it took place as if this other song existed and some like it hot. 
Anyway, boy, that it didn't even make sense as I, as I hear myself saying <laughs> I was it. with you. So that's when they called and said, do you want to do something like it hot? So, but yeah, ironically then said the thing that caught our attention most when they called for something like it hot, because we have worked on a lot of iconic movies and or books and not always ending up being praised for uh, our attempts at trying to musicalize things that are so iconic. So we were like, well. Oh, something like that hot? Are you kidding? But the producers, Craig and Neil, said, and we think f- so so that the girl playing Sugar doesn't have to deal so much with the memory of Marilyn Monroe every second, that how about if she was black? And we were like, oh, now now suddenly we were thinking of Ella Fitzgerald and Lena Horne and Billie and Holiday. Holiday and we're like, oh, that changes everything. And it was Because so there already had been a musical, you see. Yeah. Oh, that's In the right. 70s, right, right. Sugar. Sugar, right. right. Sugar, right. Yeah. yeah. So suddenly you're, you're you're dealing with a different lexicon of music. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, and then great. and then they brought on Matthew Lopez as the book writer, and and he was instrumental on saying, okay, we cannot make this be just a guy in a dress. Right. I mean, the, the, Tootsie had just opened, and then Mrs. Doubtfire, and they were constantly being attacked for being man in a dress stories, even though they all try very hard right. to not. It, it wasn't just about that, right. but we really knew. Oh my God, we have got to figure this out. But we had it right there. Billy Wilder went as far as he could in 1959, yeah. but there's Jack Lemon, really enjoying Released being a woman by being right. yes. And when he's proposed to by Osgood, he accepts <laughs> and he's jubilant about it. <laughs> yeah, it's played for laughs, but he is a real character yeah. in that movie who is overjoyed at being proposed to so we just said what if it went further yeah. further than billy wilder could, could could have gone at the time and that was the, our big challenge and also the most rewarding part of it is the fact that the show deals with the issue of finding you know gender and and discovering something about yourself that you hadn't been able to uncork mm. And then this situation that these two guys find themselves in, for one of them, it becomes this life-changing uh, yeah. moment. A release, where, right. Where yeah. this thing that he always felt out of touch and not quite right, and yeah. now suddenly he's he's she. I mean, yeah. you know, so that was really thrilling. And also because our whole lives, ever since we moved to New York, we've been friends and surrounding ourselves and partners with many, many people who were... You know, they got arrested for wearing yeah. high heels. Not, yeah. not so whenever what? we did shows, I would employ them. Do you know? I mean, right. all these great Hollywood lawns and, and, and Jane Counties, all these sort of Andy Warhol superstars who were, you know, who, who literally were in the women's house of detention. Yeah. And, and lived their lives as, as their own gender. Right. And there yeah. weren't quite the names and there wasn't quite the community that there is now. Right. And so this was also our love letter yeah. to these friends who we love so dearly. Well, and yet every time I say friends, I hear myself heart. saying friends because then we were attacked for using the expression like some of my best friends. Yeah. That, like, oh, But you, these truly yeah. were. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, these right. are literally the people we have lived our whole lives yeah. with. Right. So this was a great chance to, not unlike Hairspray, put our own lives and experiences up there in a musical. Oh, you asked that question an hour ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How does your DNA get in there? Yeah. Well, we got there. <laughs> um, and so now you have a bespoke musical, Bombshell, 
written, right? Which lived within, I understand, within the very particular purview of the show because it had to reflect the characters right. on Smash. And so, but now you are well, retooling yeah. that. For yes. Yeah. For many years, they were trying to create a musical just called Bombshell, like that, a Maryland that musical was about right, Maryland. Right. But the problem, one of the problems, was the fact that we did our job very well on the show <laughs> of figuring out how to write a song about Marilyn Monroe's life that also reflected what was going on with the characters that week on yeah, that episode. Right. So all the songs, they're not quite as specific to Marilyn, and yet they are. But, you know, it's it's not laser-focused on that one moment right. in her life. It, right. it also – and also, we were writing a showstopper every week, right. the, these songs, and luckily we had a, the actresses who could perform these songs, Kat McPhee. Right, they only had to do it healthy. once. Right. Yeah, <laughs> right here, sure. right there in the spot. And presumably you can't have showstopper after showstopper. No, because I show. always say at the by the end of the show, she, like Marilyn, would die. <laughs> right. So, you know, but with blood coming out of her, you know, vocal cords. So two, cords. two writers uh, who were really tell talented writers bob martin and rick ellis took what we had and yeah. they've they've written a script and it's very much in the style of noises off where they're trying oh, to put on a musical version of oh, multiverse of smash oh that's yeah. it's like so we get to do movie. so we yeah. get to actually f fix smash that's right <laughs> right in a sense in a i sense. mean it's, oh. it's just we're hopefully looking at the world of theater with, uh, with a lot more humor, humor in it then yeah. right, right, well, right they suddenly wanted the show to be a soap opera Right. Uh, well, it was oh, on network TV, television, sure. and, and we were like, "Where's like all the funny people? Where's the laughter?" Yeah, you could in rehearsal rooms, <laughs> you know. People, are, everyone's la you, there's usually a lot of laughter. Always, <laughs> and even when things are going horrible, yeah. there's <laughs> even more laughter. Yeah. One of the reasons why people do it for less yeah. than minimum wage, right, of right. course. So that's in the works. And presume, do you know have any idea about how close to yes, it's, crowning? It's, it's, we have the oh, dates you know? on our oh, phone. Like, okay, you're it's crowning? It's the fall of 25? I can never remember. Fall it's not next season. It's the season after next. It's Amazing. The, yeah. The fall or the spring. Amazing. The spring of 25. So there's clearly, despite how we started off this chat with <laughs> Lord Eeyore, the, the theater still, you know, you could presumably – retire to the Maldives long since, but there's something you still need from it. Is that fair to say there's a theater-shaped hole? It <laughs> certainly is inside of me. Still inside you? <laughs> no, not for me. I, no. I, when I, I perked up when you said retire. <laughs> it might not be the Maldives, but... My dream yeah. would be to write one more show that only has about six people in it in one set. <laughs> Because that's the show that'll get done for the and rest tell of me, your is life. It just, is it just the sort of scrabble of of the process that gets hard? I mean, I remember seeing you guys in um, tech, your three-and-a-half-year tech for Charlie <laughs> oh, and the God. Chocolate Factory <laughs> at Drury Lane, directed yeah. by Mendez. Yeah. And I came to see you. I think you were trying to get the glass elevator off the ground, and it felt... Uh, like this, we, when I've we, seen sound. We came back to uh, the America. We, we, had, we had to go back. We had to we come, had to come back, back, to, back here for our visa. You have to leave, and <laughs> right. we came back three, three or five days later. They were still on the same scene. <laughs> <laughs> That's not an exaggeration. We walked in, and they were still uh, on the same moment in tech. 
We couldn't believe it, but that was Sam. Just I've like, seen yeah. Mendez ground down by the, the, the technical demands of Bond movies, but I've never seen anything like this. He, he looked like a hunted man. He said to me, with no humor whatsoever, he said, I'm having a lot of trouble with my Oompa Loompas. <laughs> it sounded like exactly what it sounds like. So when that happens, is that the sort of thing that you're doing? You, when, when you roll your eyes and think about retirement, is it because instead of the art of it that happens in this room at points like that you feel like i don't know what cabinet no, he makers loves writing or, he loves i love writing writing, but you know there's a terrible expression i hate to apply to ourselves of failing upwards i mean we we keep working and keep getting asked to do things but you know speaking of charlie in england i remember morning after opening and we didn't hear from anybody from the producers and Scott and Sam had weaned me off of going online on message boards or reading anything online. They had successfully done that during that endless tech. They were like, shut off that computer. Stop doing that. Why are you going on those sites? So I finally I wrote to the producers, you know, midday, like, okay, my imagination now is much probably worse than anything that they wrote. Please send us the reviews. And, you know, they were for us pretty deadly. And we have been through this experience now enough where why would I want to keep getting beaten up? You had an extraordinary um, quote about advice to a younger artist. You said uh, something along the lines of, I don't love workshops. If I wanted to be in a room full of Jews telling me I'm no good, I could just go visit my family. <laughs> and is that how it, and I the said wider that, world I said feels? that 40 years ago. Oh, yeah, I feel yes, yes. We have gotten beat up a lot, and yet we still seem to be respected and loved. And that that was nice the day like the nominations came out for the show to remind you that, that there is a community of people who like and respect what we and our collaborators yeah i mean I, it's, it's that's i mean here's an example like there's a mary poppins return had a song in it that was nominated for an oscar and i cannot tell you how many people come up to me and say that song got me through my mother just passed and that song got me through that you know i mean it's there are there are those moments yeah, so lovely lovely moments where people you know write you or reach out to say something about that but overall i just you know you're about to go and get honored tonight. For, so you're about to get some award at Joe's Pub tonight. You're it's only for 30. music, though. Yeah. <laughs> Unmemorable music. Okay. Uh, but, yes. But here, here's... Not for those here's genius a, and, lyrics. And once again, how, how I'm thinking. Yeah, tonight, for some reason, the Dramatist Guild is giving me an award they give just to a composer, which is nice. But then the Drama Desk Awards were announced a few weeks ago, and... They separate music and lyrics, and my music wasn't nominated. Our, our lyrics Lyric. were. So, like, it's like, anyway, who really gives a fuck about any of that? But I, I, don't, I don't want to keep putting myself in that position of having to feel this way. It's a very, it must be, I, I completely understand, by the way. I'm here in New York doing a play. This has no, you know, it, it's such a different world to yours, and particularly in terms of its scope and reach it's a little off-broadway revival of a 17th century spanish play but the sensitization we go through do you feel the same way scott do you feel your skin is as as thin i completely by the way when, whenever marcus said any of this stuff it, it's exactly how yeah. i mean i i, I feel I can, when i walk out I, the stage door every night yeah i mean i can i can i get hurt by the slights but 
I do. I I can then go see the show, and and I can. I'm very proud of what's on the stage usually. So I'm not. I don't really. I don't hide. Charlie was a heartbreaker, but that's for other reasons, and and I and that had to do with. I always like to tell the story about when we first got that job, the 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 doll estate was the widow doll was alive and she hated right. the movie, so they didn't want any of the songs of the movie, and okay. so so when we first did readings with with Sam and everything, there was no of no of the Leslie Brickus Anthony Newley songs in it, right. and I and the show was really good. And then we went to visit Sam and I li- like Fredo and the Godfather. He took us for a walk. <laughs> <laughs> and he said they have to put pure imagination in. So once that happened, your things, you know, the score imploded right. in a way because it could never measure up to those things. I no. do want to go back. I want to take you back to these 13 Tony nominations. <laughs> okay. And if you could have seen, I don't know how big a, you know, figure she is in your critical landscape but if you could have seen phoebe cakes expression walking out of that show you should have seen the service i got in guitar center (laughs) buying this microphone and mike stand this morning when i said i was coming here to interview you he couldn't he couldn't believe it he said those guys are fucking legends (laughs) i i i completely understand how how difficult it is, particularly when you're carrying these, like the Sisyphean labor that you guys get up to well, in you, this room. The older you get, room. the less fearless you become. I do want to say it's very, very hard for people to see themselves. But, you know, you talk about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and I was looking at that score and those, and this, the, that magnificent song you wrote about art. And the transformative powers of art. Yeah, got cut. <laughs> got cut. <laughs> Did it? Yes. For Broadway, yeah. Are you kidding? Yeah. Simply Second Nature? Yeah, well, got cut for Broadway. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, yeah, but- we, almost all our shows, we have one song that we love the most. Right, That's our right, most right, cherished right, right. song. And it gets cut. Right. I remember Sam was so moved when we played it for him the first time. Well, it yeah. sounds like yeah. Sam's ideal we, song. Yeah. This right. is his whole life. Yeah, he was honored at some event here, and I sang it right for him, right to him. On the West End, we... Unfortunately, the place where it belonged was where in the movie he sings Pure Imagination. So the audience was like, oh, oh, I don't get to hear Pure (laughs) So he sang this song. But in New York, there was even worse. But listen, so this is the point. In fact, it's even more the point because it got cut. (laughs) And because there was this other famous song that somehow kind of shouldered it out of it. But the point is it exists. You, you, The work that you've done is undeniable. It's there for all time. And it's in a wonderful way like the MoMA retrospective of of, of Club 57. This is a... This is a body of work which, because you did it, because you swam so far out in the sea that you can't see the shore, it's only for schmoes like me who can sort of sit here and look and think, no, this is the most magnificent song about what you do, what you've dedicated your life to doing. You're reminding me that I'm... uh getting this award tonight and that would have been the perfect song to, to have sing. sung yeah. damn it <laughs> all right i've got one last question so this simply second nature song which i'm kind of obsessed by as sam was it goes simply second nature to see what isn't there the mind is such a wonder to explore and though some nights i dread all the voices in my head i'd rather be this way than be a bore so 
Sounds so good. Coming my out of your second mouth. last <laughs> question is 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 this: Are there voices in your heads? Do you have to be obsessive? Oh, can you imagine the voices in his head? <laughs> well, I've heard. I mean, the they voices are. in the but phrases. No, that, that was where we were writing for Willy Wonka. Yeah. And imagine, sure, but everyone's sure. a bit of Willy but, Wonka, but, but, yeah. uh, right? But yeah. what I'm saying is, you, this is the most wonderful song about art and the artist. And so, do you share that obsessive nature? In which case, even if you wanted to give this shit up, which it sounds like you do, you you can't. Well, I'd like to find out. <laughs> I don't know, but yeah, I have voices in my head, and like just like anybody, whether you're writing a musical or you have a you're a teller in the bank, right, right, right. you you still toss and turn at night about. But you'll often what's going wait, on wake in life. up in the morning and you'll say, "Oh, I had thought of a couplet or things." Yeah, you know where I think I in the shower. Sure. Things really come to me in the shower, yeah. so and those some nights I dread all the dripping <laughs> from my head. Yeah. Uh. All right, I'm going to leave you with this because this is a, this is a description of you. It's simply second second nature to paint outside the lines. It merely is the way that I was born. You see, I've been selected to create the unexpected and make each day feel just like. Christmas morn. That's you too. That's very sweet that of you, Jonathan. That is you too. <laughs> Thank you both so much. Thank you. Okay, there go a couple of master craftsmen. Really, those those guys I admire so much for their skill and their work ethic and their sheer talent and their will i mean they are the sort of quintessence of what it takes to succeed at the highest level in theater they really are i can't tell you how much i enjoyed talking to mark and scott I, scott i knew a little better than mark and sort of <laughs> i suppose it might have seemed at times like their incredible success was in a kind of dialogue with mark's persistent misanthropy. <laughs> Do you know, I actually found it very honest and very refreshing how Mark talked about difficulty and the sort of exposure that comes with being nominated for awards, which should seem perhaps, you know, superficially like their only wonderful affirmations. But actually, I think if you've lived a life that he's lived, it makes complete sense. You know, one of the slightly secret hopes I have for this podcast is that People contemplating a life in the theatre might find these conversations useful. And Mark's deep sensitivity to being hurt is a very real part of, of what it is to live your life having your work publicly discussed and publicly criticised, especially when you work in the American musical, which is about as good and as sort of exacting as the genre gets. I mean, it's an absolute art form at its peak in that, in that city. And so I guess it may seem that describing his 13 Tony nominations as 13 chances to lose comes across as a little pessimistic, but actually it makes me understand him much more as an artist, and maybe all artists, who have to sometimes wear an armour of self-protection from that sort of, you know, their heightened sensitivity. I mean, he can't be that baby Mozart sitting down at the piano at 12 years old and amazing those ladies in the 
community theatre, one of whom, his great mentor, who he'd just been to visit that day in the hospital. So I think he was very raw with everywhere, everything he'd come from and everything he'd, you know, struggled to be. I guess you can't be that childlike creative figure with that incredibly precocious talent, the guy with the magic in his fingers who sees music literally fly towards him, as he said, from phrases and ideas, without being incredibly sensitive and without being incredibly easily hurt. So to me, it was admirably honest about the price that some people pay for being a creative artist in such a cutthroat public arena. Oh, and the history they've lived. Wasn't that extraordinary Marie's crisis, which is still there? Club 57, the appalling ravages of the AIDS pandemic that they lived through and losing so many people they loved. All the work they've done, all the hours they spent creating, changing, refining. I just found them completely inspirational. And if you can see Some Like It Hot, you really should. I stand by my description. I think it should be on the poster. Taking the original movie's glass of champagne, adding a dash of absinthe, a couple of poppers, the love child of Dashiell Hammett and Jean Jean Gabor, and taking them all for a night in Tijuana. It was just magical. All right, Stated or Johnny is an off script production. Thank you to Louise Berry, my exec producer. Thank you to ACAST. Thank you to my brilliant producer, Ben Backhouse. Thank you to the great musicians, Iggy Cake and Phoebe Cake. And thank you to the stage manager, and thank you to you for listening and championing, championing this, and and hopefully retaining and a love for theatre. It's so 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 important. Next week, I talk to a guy who certainly has a love for theatre and retains it. The brilliant American actor John Slattery. You know John from Mad Men and uh, a ton of other movies and TV shows. Besides, he's he's got quite a story to tell about his life on the American stage. Please join me next week. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. Not a line rhymes with Johnny. But here is stage door Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. He sits in the Stay, 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 stay.